0: All right, so we finished up a series on faithfulness. Um, Last week, we talked about friendship. And when we get back from winter break, we're going to do something a little bit different. The plan is to go through like a verse-by-verse study. Uh, And we're actually going to be in the book of Galatians. Um, And so, uh, yeah, we're going to be back to just verse-by-verse, which I really enjoy. Uh, But for tonight, I wanted to take just one more message to address this broad category of technology and social media and our phones and our devices. Okay, I, know, I don't even know what to like call that. I, technology is too broad, but then like social media is like too narrow. So I'm talking about those kinds of things. And I'm talking about how to be wise and faithful with those, that area of our lives. And I think it is definitely a super relevant topic for you guys. It is a big, everyday part of your lives. Um, and I think it's, by God's providence, just a good follow-up to what we talked about last week on friendship. Um, Because one of the specific things I want to focus on and consider is how these things affect, uh, maybe even subconsciously, the way that we relate to one another, right? The kinds of friends that we are. And I I will say that even though I I think and I hope that this will be a helpful message, um, I was also a little hesitant um, whether I wanted to address this topic because I know that everyone has their own experience and their own engagement with things like social media and our phones and devices and technology. Some of you use it more than others. uh, And and along with our different experiences and engagement, we have our own perspectives and our own biases, right? And and a super obvious example of that is, think about how your parents use their phones and how you use your phone, right? Like uh, you, you think about how your parents text or how they like take pictures, or selfies and, you know, they do the whole like lean back kind of thing and you cringe, right? They're like, how do you not know how to use such a simple thing? But then on the other side, your parents nag you and they think that you're the one who's weird, right? Because you're like constantly glued to your screen. And so there's like a generational gap there and so consequently there's different perspectives. Um, and so to an extent, even though like I don't think I'm that far <laughs> removed from you guys, I'm not equating myself with your parents, um, although I am a millennial, and you guys are Gen Z, apparently, um, and Will always calls me a boomer. Thank you, Will. Um, but I know that I bring my own perspective, right? Like, my experience of this is not the same necessarily as you guys. Um, and it makes, it makes sense why this happens. Right? When you think about technology, uh, you're talking about progress. You're talking about advancement. And so, of course, how old you are, when you were born on this, you can call it this like timeline of technology, it's gonna influence what you think about it. Uh, For some people, texting and social media and all the things that phones can do nowadays, it's pretty revolutionary, right? They never would have imagined such a thing. But for others, like many of you, it's all you've known. Like you grew up and this was just normal life. These were everyday things that you could not imagine life without. One author observed that young people too quickly embrace any and all technology, and older generations too quickly criticize and reject all forms of technology. Young people too quickly embrace everything, older generations are too quick to reject everything. And I think that's a general, obviously that's like a blanket statement, but I think there's truth to that, right? Those probably are the tendencies and temptations for each of those groups. Uh, the author Neil Postman, he said something similar when he wrote about technology, even way back in or late 20th century, like 1985. Um, he, he called technology mythic. And what he meant by that is it becomes this way of life that we just perceive as normal. But the danger of that is when something becomes so mythic that we stop thinking about it at all. Right? We stop questioning it at all. We stop considering wisely and critically what we're doing with our devices and our phones and social media. And so do we stop and to consider do we stop and think about questions like what and how and why, right? When it comes to something as simple as our phones. I mean, I think about my own use of social media and technology and I think like one word that comes to mind or that characterizes it is mindlessness, right? It's not like consideration or thoughtfulness, it's actually mindlessness. And you can argue that that's like what those big companies are going for, right, with their algorithms and all that stuff. But, but when I think about, like, when I wake up in the morning, I reach for my phone, and I turn off my alarm, but the next thing I do is what? I, I check Gmail, right, or I check, like, Facebook or Instagram. And maybe you can relate to that. You think of just the mindlessness that happens with technology in our devices. We mindlessly scroll through our news feeds. or we can even be mindless... Um, to an extent about the things that we post and the words that we broadcast. We don't think about the consequences or the ramifications of some of the things that we say. And so for tonight, I want to challenge you guys to pursue faithfulness, and specifically faithfulness by thinking carefully and critically about this area of your life. I want to challenge you guys to an awareness of your own heart and to a deep study of God's Word and how those truths that we find in Scripture ought to shape your engagement with your phones and your devices and social media and technology. Now, before we jump in, I want to answer or ask a question. Um, is technology bad? Right? When it comes to this kind of message on this topic, are we saying that this is a bad thing? Right? Is social media our phones, all of that, is that bad? And I think most of us would rarely say no. Right? Technology is not a bad thing. Um, it's part of God's common grace. And by that, we just mean... God's blessing that he bestows on all of humanity, It's like one uh, evidence of God's common grace. And um, of course, the word technology never shows up in the Bible, but we do see how God, when he created the world, he tasked Adam with keeping the earth, right? And he told him, hey, I want you to work this garden. I want you to cultivate it. And as we move forward, um, we see Adam's immediate offspring start doing things like building cities, uh, and Genesis 4:17, and, and uh, some of Adam's offspring start forging tools and instruments out of things like bronze and iron, uh, Genesis 4:22. And so we see, like technology shows up in the storyline of the Bible, even if we don't notice it right away. Um, one author, his name is John Dyer, he observed how the Bible moves in Genesis to Revelation, from garden to city, from uh, the Garden of Eden to this New Jerusalem this city in a new heaven and a new earth. And so I think we can kind of see, like tech, this is how technology fits in. It's part of God's uh, c- a cultural mandate, right? This is part of his common grace. There is, a one, there is one story in Genesis 11, um, 1 to 9, that is particularly instructive for us when it comes to technology. Uh, Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, and you guys might be familiar with this story. Um, that passage says that the people, they made brick and they made mortar and they set out to build a city and a tower uh, so great that it had its top in the heavens. But they wanted to do that, the goal said, or their, their motive was they wanted to make a name for themselves. And actually, if you read carefully in that passage, if you compare Genesis 11.4 with Genesis 1.28, that, the job that, uh, that God gives Adam to do, These people actually wanted to rebel against God's command to disperse and to fill the earth. They all wanted to stay in one place. And so we do see that it it matters, right? It matters what we do with technology. We can use it for good or we can use it for bad. We can use it uh, to honor God or we can use it to make a name for ourselves. We can use it in a way that reflects the image of God or we can use it in a way that disobeys him. And I think we would acknowledge that, we understand that. But something else that we have to consider isn't just what we do with technology, but what it does to us, right? How does it shape our hearts? How does it form our minds? How does it define the things that we value? And I think we have to be aware of both of those things, not just what we do with it, but what it does to us, how it forms us. Um, Just one more disclaimer before we jump in. I, I know technology can encompass like a whole variety of things. Um, But like I kind of mentioned, we're just going to focus more narrowly on the things that we use every day, Um, specifically things like our phones or our devices or the internet or social media. And so in light of that, I want to just consider three specific areas that I want to bring to your attention. Three uh, areas or three specific dangers or values I think that technology teaches us. And just to consider what does faithfulness look like uh, in these different areas of our lives? Okay, So the first one uh, we'll call content, um, or you can also call it intake if you want content. You may have heard the the crazy statistics about just the thousands and millions of emails that are sent, um, Google searches, Facebook Facebook posts, um, tweets, text messages that happen per second. Have you ever seen those numbers? It's like, actually, it's like mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. It's crazy just the amount of content that is already out there and just the amount of content that gets created each second. And we're not even just talking about, like, what exists, like, in the universe, but even when you think about your own day, uh, just take an inventory, and there's an amazing amount of content that we take in each day, right, that we consume on a daily basis. Well, what does God's Word have to say about the stuff that we take in? One of the pictures that Scripture often uses to describe it is what we do with our eyes. This is a common picture throughout Scripture. In Genesis 3.6, this is um, right before the fall, um, when Eve is tempted by the serpent. It specifically says in that verse, Genesis 3.6, that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Uh, 1 John 2.16, it kind of echoes back to that scene. When John, he's warning against worldliness, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And right, so we see kind of a common theme there, right? Our eyes, uh, we have desires of the eyes. Uh, in Matthew five twenty nine. this is the famous passage from the Sermon on the Mount on lust. Do you guys remember what Jesus says about sin and temptation in our eyes? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And so from that passage, we learn that what we look at, what we take in is so consequential, not just to our eyes, but to our whole bodies, right? And that's, that's really our souls, our hearts, that it would be better for us to radically amputate our eyes. And obviously that's hyperbole, right? But to do that for the sake of eternity, that it is that significant, what we consume, what we take in. In all of those passages, the eyes does refer to literal sight, right? Like looking at something. But the bigger point is that what we consume, what we take in out there is going to shape us and affect us in here. It's going to shape our hearts. And even in that same passage from Matthew 5, he's talking about looking at a woman, right? Outside and then lusting after her in your own heart. Well, it's the same way with our thought life. Um, in Philippians 4.8, Paul calls us to this active and intentional meditation and dwelling on things that are praiseworthy, uh, things that are actually worthy, thinking, worthy, uh, worthy of thinking about. You guys know this verse. He says, Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, these are the things that we should be thinking about, right? that we should be taking in and filling our minds with. Um, similar uh, idea in Colossians 3.1-2. Paul says, Since then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Uh, So we are called to set our minds, right, on things that are above, not things that are down here. And it's interesting if you keep reading later in that passage, in verses 15 to 17, he starts to talk about the heart. Right? Not just our minds, but our hearts. And he starts to talk about the thoughts and the values that ought to govern and ought to characterize our hearts. What does he say? Verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing to God with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, so we, you see the idea here, right? What we take in is going to rule our hearts. And realize we're not just talking about like super clear, black and white, obviously sinful and not sinful categories. Okay, we're not just talking about, okay, what can I watch and what can't I watch on Netflix? Like can I watch Squid Game or can I not watch Squid Game? And right? I've mentioned it before, but I think Pastor Kim's analogy of um, fueling your faith is really helpful with this. Okay, and just let me back up. I think there's clear answers to some of those questions sometimes. Uh, But a lot of the times, right, it's it's gray areas and it's wisdom. And so I, I think what Pastor Kim has said about feeling your faith is really helpful. Like, if you know for you that you struggle, for example, with greed, or if you know that you struggle with materialism, then if you are constantly taking in Uh, like your favorite store's websites, or if you're constantly window shopping on Amazon or reading about certain topics, maybe even like stocks, which is not a bad thing in itself, but if you know that that's going to cause you to struggle, if that's going to fuel your worship of that idol that you already have, then is it really wise for you to be taking in that kind of stuff? Or if you know that you struggle with comparison and discontentment, And scrolling on Instagram, seeing all the different places that your friends get to travel um, or all the different coffee shops that they get to order a latte at or all the get-togethers that they're at with other friends, if you know that you struggle with comparison, then of course that's going to hurt you a little bit, right? That's going to fuel your worship of that idol. And so this requires an honesty. This requires a humility and a wisdom on our part with our own hearts, like, where are we weak? Where do we struggle with? How are our devices and technology actually affecting us more than we know? And this might not be an easy thing to recognize ourselves because, like I said at the beginning, this is such an embedded part of our lives, right? Like, we don't even recognize some of the effects of this. I mean, so it might be necessary to ask a close friend, hey, like, where do you see this affecting me? And then, after that, as Matthew five twenty nine talks about, it requires this willingness to be radical with the steps that we will take to guard our hearts. Right, we're talking about matters of eternity. We're talking about our soul. Um, Proverbs 4, 23. Uh, I know we, we use this verse a lot with uh, like dating and romantic relationships, but it says, keep your heart with all vigilance or guard your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Are we actively guarding our hearts when it comes to the content that we take in. I like the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 119.37. He says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. When you think about that word worthless, there's a sense in which that's a neutral thing, right? Because worthless just means uh, unsubstantial. It means without profit. But that's not how the psalmist sees it, right? He, He says, Turn my eyes from those things. They're not just neutral, they're actually harmful. And so, divert my gaze in another direction where, he says, life in your ways. And specifically, Psalm 119 is about the word of God, right? the scriptures. Turn my eyes there where I find life. And so, is that our inclination, college students, to run toward life in the ways of God's word? Do we follow and believe the values and stories that scripture tells us or that this digital world tells us? For example, what does the world teach us about the good life? What does it teach us about how we reach contentment? Um, when Steve Jobs, he, he took over Apple, he revitalized the company, not so much by like, selling a new product, but actually by selling a way of life. And um, he had this motto or a company slogan, it was think different. And what he meant by that is buying an Apple product wasn't just about like, how fast your computer was or your spe- the specs and numbers, but buying an Apple product was about joining in on something bigger. It was about joining in on this uh, certain aesthetic or lifestyle. And we can so easily buy into that, right? We're not just buying like, these like, ear- earbuds. We're buying like, this lifestyle, this look. If you don't have an iPhone, then you don't have you know, fill in the blank. That's, what, that's one lesson or that's an example of what the world teaches us about contentment and the good life. But what does God's word say? First Timothy six, six to seven, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Or Hebrews 13:5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so that passage, Hebrews 13:5, teaches us contentment doesn't come from getting the next new faster thing. Right? It comes from getting God. and It says God is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Or what about something as practical and ordinary as what we wear and how we dress? And we are undeniably influenced by what we see on our news feeds and on the internet. Right? And we want to present ourselves a certain way. And that's not a bad thing. And, or is it a bad thing to care about fashion and style? Right? Carmen like, works in that industry. That's not a bad thing. But is that the only place... Is the world and the internet the only place where we are learning about what defines beauty? Is that the picture that comes to mind uh, alone? Is that the picture alone that comes to mind? In passages like 1 Timothy 2 and Titus 2, it reminds us that godliness is beauty. Don't just concern yourself with external attire, but concern yourself with adorning the gospel through a life that is pleasing to God. And so do we go through that kind of exercise with God's word regularly, right? Not just to accept everything that we take in, but to think thoughtfully and wisely and critically about it. Not just to be conformed to the ways of the world, as Romans Romans 12, one to two says, but being transformed by the renewal of our minds. And it says testing and discerning what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And doing that in every area of our lives, including what we do on our phones on the internet. Okay, so that's the first um, danger uh, is content or intake. Second is speed, speed. Uh, you can probably already think of all the different ways that this aspect of speed is such a, a big and defining part of technology. Right, we, we can find out about breaking news like literally minutes after it happens. We can find the answers to our questions instantaneously by just typing in a question on our search bars. Um, if you need to tell a friend something, you can pull out your phone right now and you can send a text, right? And you can communicate that message to them. Um, I got a, a new phone and a laptop this past year. And even if, like, many of the features, many of the, the uh, interface and the looks are the same, the very first thing I notice is, like, like, wow, this is much faster, right, than my old one. Even if my old one wasn't even that old. It was just, like, a few years old. And don't get me wrong, this is an amazing thing. This is the grace of God that people have the minds to be able to create things like this. But I wonder if our experience of instantaneous results has shaped us to just expect speed when it comes to everything. Right? That's just what we expect. That's what we demand, actually. I wonder if it's made us more distracted and impatient and unfamiliar uh, with waiting and actually made us unwilling to wait. And when you read all throughout the Bible, we actually see that much of the Christian life is slow rather than fast. Right? It's steady growth. It's one day at a time, from one degree of glory to the next. Second um, Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Um, In that passage, Peter's talking about the return of Christ. Some people were getting restless. They were wondering when he would come back. Um, But one very simple truth that we can take from that verse is that oftentimes we have different expectations about speed and about time than than God does. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Um, Habakkuk 2.3 is similar. It says, if it seems slow, wait for it, Because it shall surely come. Do you know one of the significant things that God calls us to do in the Christian life over and over again in the Bible? It is to wait. Psalm after Psalm says, wait for the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Um, Psalm 33, 20, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our hope, or He is our help and our shield. Psalm 130, 5 to 6, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Um, Titus 2, 11 to 14, it says that the entire Christian life, the time between Christ's first appearing and his second coming, that entire time is us waiting for our blessed hope. And we can spend a whole sermon on this, but waiting on God is not just doing nothing. It's not passive inactivity. It is this active hoping. It is anticipating and trusting. It's a remembering and resting in the character and promises of God. We wait because God works according to his own timeline, and it is for our good. Waiting reminds us that there are so many things that are out of our control, and so the most that we can do, the best thing we can do is wait. But one of the features of technology is that it gives us more control. And so we don't have to wait, right? Or we don't have to wait as often. And there are a lot of situations where we can just try to figure out like this quick fix or where we want to just see immediate results. And I think one area in particular that I can think of that we just like wrongly want speed is when it comes to how people change, right? Whether that's change in other people or change in ourselves. Maybe you've ever, have you ever uh, wrestled with these questions like, why can't he just get over that struggle? Or when will she just recognize her own sin? Why does it feel like my Bible reading isn't doing anything? Or why does it seem like God isn't answering any of my prayers? And so often we are after this quick fix. But how do people change? And I'm not, I'm just, I'm not just talking about like external behavior modification. I'm talking about real, genuine heart change. How do people change? We change as we know Christ better. We change in relationship to him. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we are transformed by the Spirit from one degree of glory to another as we are beholding the glory of the Lord. Um, As Pastor Tim has said before, we change at the pace of a relationship with Christ. We change at the pace of a relationship with Christ. And if you think about any kind of relationship, a relationship takes time, doesn't it? And so does growth, and so does change in the Christian life. I, lo- I love the picture that James 5, 7-8 <clears throat> to 8 gives us of a farmer who is patiently waiting for his crops. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Like we said earlier, waiting, is not, waiting isn't doing nothing. I mean, a farmer wakes up early in the morning, works the soil, sows the seed, and in the same way we are called to do the ordinary but the hard work of everyday discipleship. But the farmer also recognizes that much of it is outside of his control, that he depends on on the early and the late rains, as it says in that passage. And so growth requires time and patience. And a farmer would never, ever say that those periods of waiting where the seed is still under the ground are wasted or unnecessary. Because something productive is happening, right? Even if you can't see it in the moment. And that totally goes against our idea of productivity, doesn't it? Like, we, with the speed of technology, it doesn't help us actually do more things. It actually puts this pressure to, or this greater urge to get even more things done. Like we feel like we got to keep up with just how fast technology is, is moving with our productivity. And so have our devices, has this digital world made us forget how to wait upon God? Like have we started to value quick fixes, instant results, rather than ordinary and faithful discipleship? A discipleship, that doesn't always see the results that we want, but we trust in God's character and promises. Uh, before we move on, I think one more just very tangible way that I think the speed of technology can affect us is that it makes us less skilled at just being able to give sustained attention to one thing for a good amount of time. Like we just can't focus on things for an extended amount of time. I mean, some of you guys watch like, YouTube videos at like two times speed, and that's just normal for you. I can't do that. And, and when you think about just this skill, right, just to be able to have sustained attention to one thing for a good amount of time, that is such a vital part of the Christian life. Whether we're talking about prayer, whether we're talking about reading the Bible, meditation, even listening to a 45-minute sermon, you can go on and on, all these things in the Christian life that require us to do that well. And so often we are ruled by the tyranny of the urgent, or we get distracted by just the, the notifications that bombard our phones. And we don't, like, we can't focus, and we don't take enough time to just ponder the things that really matter. And I think seeing how Jesus lived his life of ministry um, in Mark 1:35 to 39, it's, it's really convicting to see. In that passage, it says that, uh, it says, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, and that's already hard enough for us, right? Um, but doing that, he, he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And just like think about how busy a person like Jesus would have been, especially in that point at Mark where his popularity was just, like going crazy. Think about how many things he could have been doing, healing, casting out demons, seeing more people, and he intentionally carves out time. He makes space early in his day to spend time in prayer with his father. And actually, if you keep reading in that passage, by the time Simon and his disciples find Jesus, you can almost hear the urgency in their words. They're like, "Hey, Jesus, everyone is looking for you." And instead of saying, "Okay, like I'm ready for them, like send them to me," Jesus actually says, "Oh, we gotta go. Like we gotta go to the next town because I, uh, that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out." In other words, Jesus knows what's important. Right? Not just what is urgent, but what is important, what he has sent on mission for. And so do we do that? Are we intentional about carving out time, making space, right? Taking a break from just the, the speed that, that floods us. Do we know what is important? And then the last one is presence. We talked about this last week um, when it came to being a, a friend who is constant. And I mentioned this verse from 2 John 12. Uh, It says this in that verse, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. You know, it's strange to think that paper and ink for uh, the Apostle John, it would have been considered technology. You can think of it technology in his day. And he says that even though I can communicate with you that way, I want to come and talk to you face to face. I think it's really interesting that this verse is in the Bible. And notice that he doesn't completely dismiss technology, okay? Because he does write, right? He writes that very letter, Second John and, and many others. And providentially, God uses John's paper and ink um, in the canon of Scripture for the benefit of the church, even for us today. That's kind of cool to think about. Um, but here in this verse, what John is saying is that there is something irreplaceable about embodied presence, there's something irreplaceable about face-to-face relationships, something about that that makes our joy complete. And I think what John shows us is that just because something is easier or just because, because something is more efficient, it doesn't mean that it's better. And I think we get that, right? Like we, we get that as just with life in general Um, We understand, hopefully, that uh, when you're getting a present for someone significant in your life, for your girlfriend or boyfriend, like even though a gift card is easier, even though it is more efficient, uh, you can even say it's more practical because they can, you know, like take it and buy whatever they want. Um, It's not the most thoughtful gift, right? And in case you didn't know that with Christmas coming up, you're welcome. Don't get your girlfriend or boyfriend a gift card. Uh, You probably want to get something better than that. And so we we know that, right? It's like, it's not all about ease or convenience, right? It's not about just what is practical. Face-to-face presence allows us to do all the little things that we can easily overlook. Things like eye contact and body language and asking clarifying questions and communicating tone and even sitting in moments of silence and uncomfortable awkwardness but most significantly, like I said, it's not all pragmatic, right? There is something about embodied presence and really all the goal of all of those little things that I just mentioned. There's something about embodied presence that communicates importance. It is a way to love well. It is a way to honor this other person, to show that you are here and you are nowhere else. Now, don't get me wrong, technology affords us so many practical ways in which we can communicate care and love and importance to others. A lot of times you can't be there, right, with someone side by side in a moment of need, but you can make a phone call or you can send a text, and that means a lot. I mean, I can think of many times where I've received something like that and it was super encouraging, it was just like what I needed at that moment. But I can also relate to the temptation to be complacent with convenience. To feel like, okay, I'll just do this. And being connected with others via social networks can fool us into thinking that we're more present and we're more connected than we actually are. It can fool us into thinking, oh, we actually know this person more than we actually do. You know, one of the best litmus tests of being a faithful presence is where are you when things go wrong and relationships are hard? Repeatedly throughout Scripture, it talks about the need to bear with one another. Um, Galatians 6.2, it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 3, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so ask yourself, do we use our devices, our phones, uh, our, our social media in a way that helps or hinders that call to bear burdens. And then, as we talked about last week, with being friends who are vulnerable, right? the other side of it is important too. Do we allow others to share in bearing our own burdens through being honest, through being humble? Do we share vulnerably with others? Because I'm sure you know one of the dangers of social media is that we can present this carefully curated untrue, better-than-reality version of ourselves to others, right? I'm sure you guys have seen those, like, ridiculous pictures of, like, the boyfriends doing, like, yoga or, like, gymnastics trying to take a picture, right, of their girlfriends uh, for Instagram. We exaggerate the good parts of our lives. We, we hide and we minimize, and we don't want to show others the not-so-exciting parts of our lives. And if we're honest, some of us even do that with the intention of, like, elevating ourselves and make, even making, trying to like, make other people feel bad. Right? Like, we use this better-than-reality like reality version of ourselves. I think the overarching theme with this idea of presence is whether or not we really understand this biblical picture of relationships. Right? Relationships in the Bible is life on life. Right? To borrow the title of this book, relationships are a mess worth making. That they're not just about the fun times and exciting times or the good parts of our lives, but they will inevitably include sin and suffering. And often our devices and social media doesn't end up being an opportunity to enter into that, but actually a way to escape from that, right? to guard ourselves from that, to not have to deal with that. And so do we value presence in this digital world? What boundaries do you need to establish to ensure that technology and social media don't take away from biblical relationships, from being a good friend, from being there for people. Let's bring this to a close. There's so much more, I think, that we could probably say. I feel like, like we've only just skimmed the surface, and hopefully this is just the beginning of a conversation that can continue um, into fruitful discussions in your small groups. But like I said at the beginning, my goal is not to tell you the things that you cannot, can and cannot do. Because I think so much of what we do with technology and social media and our devices, it comes down to wisdom, right? It comes down to really living skillfully. There's so much good that can come about from the choices that we make with our devices. And yet there are a lot of dangers and there are a lot of temptations that we need to be aware of. And specifically in this digital world, there are a lot of ways that our devices and our engagement with these these things can shape us and disciple us in ways that we don't even realize, And so, again, do we take time to ask what and why and how? Do we uh, view these activities that we might mindlessly engage in every day through the grid of God's word? Um, Let me read just from Matthew 5, 13 to 16. This is a familiar passage, but it reminds us of our mission and our identity in a watching world. Matthew 5, 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? the internet that plays in our everyday lives is so significant, and yet it can be so entrenched that it becomes mythic, that it becomes something that we don't even give second thought to. But I want you to realize this is also an opportunity to to really be countercultural, to really be salt of the earth and light of the world, to show a watching world what God values and not just what the world teaches us to value. And so even with these area of our lives, even with the phone in your pocket, may we be wise, discerning, thoughtful, loving, faithful, and God-centered users of all those things. Let's pray. God, we do ask for wisdom. We ask for um, understanding and just the thoughtfulness, even when it comes to uh, this really big, but often um, neglected and, and mindless Um, part of our lives. And so we do ask that we would be people who are not so easily conformed just to the ways of the world, but who are uh, convinced that we must be transformed um, by the renewal of our minds, that we would be searching your word, that we might discern your good and perfect will, even with uh, this area of our lives. And so God, we thank you, I pray, for just fruitful discussions in our small groups. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.